All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. We're so glad you could attend. Come inside, come inside. There behind the glass is a real blade of grass. Be careful as you pass. Move along, move along. Come inside. The show's about to start. Guaranteed to blow your head apart because this is the Fishing Professor Rodcast, and I am so glad you could attend. I am Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor, and right before your eyes, we'll pull the laughter from the skies, and we'll laugh until we cry, then I'll die, then I'll die. You got to hear this show, because we are going to get things rolling with a great interview with an up-and-coming angler out of Jupiter, Florida, who I met a few weeks ago while he and his mom were on an adventure up in Lake of the Woods, Minnesota, where Oliver Taylor and his mom, Caroline, were trying ice fishing for the first time. And believe me, because I was up there doing the exact same thing, we Florida folk were a bit shocked by the minus 28 degree weather up there, but were more than taken by the excitement of ice fishing and the beauty of the area. And so we're going to talk ice fishing and a bunch of other fishing related stuff, including DIY rod building with Oliver, who is making some great looking rods and also tying bucktails and other lures. And then after I talked to the tailors, I'll turn some attention to Hudson Baby Bourbon Whiskey, and then I'm going to count down my top 10 bait knives. You know, speaking of ice fishing, as we will in just a moment, before this great trip I made out to Lake of the Woods and the fantastic hospitality offered by the folks at Riverbend Resort, great place, great people, but before that, I really only had one other ice fishing experience in my life. You see, one day, my buddy and I had been doing a little of that day drinking and decided to try our hand at ice fishing. So my buddy grabbed an auger and drilled a hole in the ice and peered down in it. And all of a sudden, there's this booming voice from above that says, there are no fish down there. So taking this as a sign, we walked about 50 yards down the ice and my buddy augered out another hole. And again, when we peered down into the hole, the voice rang out, there's no fish down there. So we tried again, walking a few dozen more yards away and drilling out another hole. And then again, the voice, there are no fish down there. And in a state of afternoon inebriation, my friend hollers back at the voice, God, is that you? And the voice booms back, no, you idiot, it's the rink manager. Thank you. Thank you very much. So welcome back, my friends, and welcome to the Rodcast. Let's get casting. All right, my listening crew, we have got a real treat of a conversation this week because I have got Oliver and Caroline Taylor in the Inshore Offshore Digital Studio this week. Now, who, you may be asking, are Oliver and Caroline Taylor? And that's a fair question to ask because up until a few weeks ago, I would have been asking the same exact question if it weren't for a chance meeting at the Riverbend Resort in Lake of the Woods, Minnesota, and if it weren't for the fact that Oliver and Caroline have a great story to tell. You see, Oliver's a 15-year-old fanatic angler out of Jupiter, Florida, and Caroline's his mom. And for those of you who don't know, Jupiter sits on Florida's east coast, just south of Port St. Lucie and just north of West Palm Beach. Now, Oliver does a lot of fishing around Jupiter, but when his mom, Caroline, asked him what kind of fishing he'd like to try his hand at and that he hadn't tried before, Oliver said he'd like to try ice fishing. So Caroline, who, by the way, is a pilot for American Airlines, took Oliver up to Lake of the Woods to try his hand at ice fishing, where, coincidentally, I was also trying my hand at ice fishing for the first time as a Florida boy. So even though I've never fished with Caroline or Oliver, we shared the experience of dragging our subtropical souls out onto that ice in what the locals even referred to as some brutally cold days. Now, I was at the Riverbend Resort along with about 10 other outdoor media folks as part of the Association of Great Lakes Outdoor Writers Ice Camp. So my intent was to find stories to write about ice fishing and to find people to have on the broadcast. And after meeting Oliver and his mom 
And after I spent a few minutes chatting with them, I knew I had to invite them to be on the Rodcast. And as we talk on this week's episode, you'll see why. So as I said, I am thrilled to have Carolyn and Oliver on the Rodcast this week. Oliver, Caroline, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Good morning. Good morning. So I like to begin all of the conversations on the Rodcast with some origin story stuff. So let me start by asking Oliver. How did you get into fishing and what is it about fishing that you get the most excited about? Well, about like three years ago, me and my friend, we saw some YouTube videos of some people bass fishing and our friends have always been fishing, but we've never really got into it before. So we went out, bought a bait caster and we went to some ponds and we caught some bass and thought it was pretty fun. And then since then, I've just always been fishing. So that's an interesting avenue in via YouTube. Talk to me about the kinds of stuff you like to watch on YouTube then. I just love watching people going out fishing and like, especially like stuff that like I can do. So like people going around to like ponds and stuff, trying out new things and then going on the boat. Excellent. So Caroline, as a mom, what is it about Oliver's fishing that leads you to support his, well, hobby is not the right word here. It's more like his passion. Talk to me about being a mom with a kid who loves to fish. Oh, it's great. I love it. You know, he comes home from school. He'll, you know, be motivated to get his homework done um, just so that he can then go fish. And I think it's great. Get outdoors. And, you know, he, he's not playing video games. He, he would much rather be out fishing with his friends. So, Caroline, do you have any fishing background? Did you like to fish before Oliver's passion about it? Um, he's actually got, got me into it and, um, he, he, he got me a rod for my birthday last year. Um, Very nice. and, um, no, it's brilliant. We, it's something we can do together. Oh, excellent. Excellent. I love to hear that. So before we get to the epic tale of Lake of the Woods ice fishing, Oliver, tell us a little bit more. You mentioned it, but tell me a little bit about your fishing life in June in, in, uh, Jupiter. What are you doing there? Well, I, uh, ride my bike around to wherever there's water, fish <laughs> it, and caught some bass in there. I caught a nine and a half pound bass at a pond right next to me. And then whenever I can, I'll go on the boat, catch some snook, tarpon, snapper, whatever I can find. So, uh, you know, I've been, since we met, I've, I'll admit, I've been stalking you on the socials. And so I've seen, uh, I've seen your pictures uh, of the fish that you've got. Um, so you, you do a lot of both salt and freshwater. And like you said, you know, you're in Jupiter on a bike. That's a lot of water area that you can get to. Um, so which do you prefer salt or fresh? Salt. Definitely. Salt. Because the Why? Fish, what is they fight, it? They fight way harder. I can go way more places. It's a lot more fun. So you got a picture up of you with a big old bonefish that you caught in West End Bahamas. And it looks like you took it on a white soft body curly tail. Tell yeah. me about that fish and about that trip. And was that the only bone you got? Uh, no. So um, I went out with a guy named Bonefish Tommy in West End. And um, we went out to the flats to try and find the bonefish and permit tarpon, whatever we could really find. And they weren't really on the flats too much. And uh, he figured that they would be out more. So we went out and like in deeper waters and that's where they were all feeding and like in like big, big like mugs. So you could just like look around and you'd see like very murky water. So we'd go over there and we'd throw like little grubs at them. And I think I caught about 10 bonefish that day and just blind casting. And that nice one happened to hit and that was very fun. Was that all on spinning tackle? Yeah. You didn't do any on fly? Uh, no, I, I wanted to try fly, but I I wasn't really into it then. So, But next time I go, I really want to get one on fly. Did you get any of the permit or tarpon? No, no permit or tarpon. It was only bonefish. Have you caught permit and tarpon before? I've caught a tarpon, but not a permit. You're in the right area for the permit. You just need to head a little bit south. Yeah. So. Caroline, that's pretty incredible that you took Oliver to the Bahamas or out to Minnesota to let him follow his fishing passion. How do you think about the role of these trips and his growth as an angler and as a teenager? Oh, I think, you know, uh, 
travel is is great it's very educational you know he gets to meet people like you um and um just broaden his his horizon it's fantastic um couldn't imagine a pilot saying travel was bad so uh (laughs) (laughs) so you know i gotta say with that kind of uh you know being able to take oliver to those places you know you're, you're up for mom of the year award there in terms of all the anglers in the in the country right now so uh Oliver, you've got some other picks of some impressive fish, which I'm assuming you caught locally, one of which is that fat old largemouth that looks like you took it from a neighborhood pond. And I remember you telling me about this fish when we were in Minnesota, but tell the story of that big old bass. Yeah, so me and my neighbor, uh, we just love to go bass fishing and bike around. And one evening, uh, there's this neighborhood next to me. It has about like 16 ponds in it. So we just go around every pond. And I caught like a nice seven pounder on a jerk bait in this other pond a few weeks before that. And then we went out and tried another pond and I just had like a little curly tail on and just casted it out. It was, sun was about to go down and I was able to get him in. Excellent. That's a big fish, particularly from a pond. I mean, how that neighborhood had to have been there for a while for those ponds to have stocked up with that many fish. Yeah, it's been there for a while. That's pretty awesome to have those kind of ponds in your neighborhood where you can just bike to in the afternoon. It's very fun. All right. So you got a snook pick up there also. Talk to me about that big snook. I caught that snook at a spillway. Um, it was, I, I live right next to the spillway actually. And whenever it's on, it's always good. But because all the bait fish, they come down. It's a very long freshwater canal. There's so many spillways on this canal, but this is like the main one leading into the big river, saltwater, and all these little bait fish come down. So my friend, he went out and cast netted some uh, cichlid, bluegill, and like tilapia. And this one, I hooked like a cichlid about like, I don't know, it like not too big, but a decent sized cichlid. And he was just out right where the water was flowing. And then that's when the snook hit and my friend went down on the rocks and got him up do you like fishing live bait like that uh i'd prefer to catch them on lures but at the spillways they're always fun to do it every now and again when they're open and an interesting mix of fish in those spillways too because you've got the snook coming up and the freshwater fish coming down so you end up with a big variety of those places also yeah all right so one of the other pictures you've got is a really nice snakehead. Talk to me about snakehead fishing because uh, I'm seeing more and more people target snakeheads these days. Yeah, my mom doesn't really like the snakehead. Too much. I don't think many people do. <laughs> well, I love them because they fight so hard for just like their size and they're in mainly like canals. So, and I used to live in Wellington. So I have a lot of friends in Wellington. It's like a like town more inland. And there's a lot more canals and lakes. And we just walk along these banks uh, in like neighborhoods and stuff or wherever. And you'll find these snakehead right up along the bank. It's still in the water. And they're just waiting for like anything to fall down and drop down. So topwater frogs work the best for them. But uh, this one I caught on a little three inch paddle tail. And we were fishing for peacock bass and we were playing around with this one peacock bass and my friend looks over to the side and he's like oh my gosh and I'm like what is it what is it and he could he was like he could not speak and it was he saw this massive snakehead right there as we were just playing around with this little peacock peacock bass so uh saw the snakehead I pitched it right at him he ate it and he took off running well, I was going to ask you, since you were fishing snakeheads, are you also targeting peacock bass? Because they're usually in the same places. You like peacocks? Yeah, oh yeah, they're so fun. Yeah, it's interesting because here in Florida, on your side over on the East Coast, the lots of peacocks are smaller than the ones they get farther south on the West Coast. And so we actually have uh, two different kinds of peacock fisheries here in the state. So um, that's on my bucket list, by the way. I have not caught a peacock, and I've got lots of friends down your way and keep saying, come catch peacocks, but I haven't done it yet. So oh, yeah, you got to come down here. They're everywhere. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're like one of the, the you know, that that's the interesting 
comparison, right? The snakehead and the peacocks are both invasive species. And, you know, most people have the same reaction your mom just had to the snakehead of, oh, gross, yuck. But as soon as you say peacocks, everybody's like, oh, yeah, those are beautiful. Those are great. Yeah, everyone wants to save all the peacocks, but they they do the same amount of damage as the snakeheads. It's the angler's choice whether you kill them or not. Yep. And do you keep, do you release them or do you kill them? Uh, snakehead, I don't know. Uh, every, every time I go out fishing, I normally don't like, there's only been a few times I target the snakehead. So I don't really have anything to kill the snakehead because they have like a really rock hard head. And they can stay out of water for like multiple days and like without water. So I haven't killed too many of them, but because I, I find them fun to catch, but it depends. Have you eaten them? No, I've never eaten them. <laughs> I, I've heard they're very good, but I feel like all of the water that I fish them in, the water is like very dirty. So I just don't know how that would be. Yeah, there is that questionable South Florida canal fishing contamination question always, whether you eat from the canals or not. So, yeah, because who knows what's in that water? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, I promise we're going to get to the ice fishing. But there's one other thing that, that I found really interesting that you told me when we met is that you also build rods. And you showed me some pics of some absolutely amazing professional grade thread work on a rod that you built. How in the world did you get into rod building and how did you do learn to do that level of craftsmanship at such a young age? Well, I've always been into like art and before I uh, would fish, before I got into fishing, I did a lot of like drawing and painting and that sort of stuff. And then when I got into fishing, I just kind of stopped all of that, but I love like art still. And my friend he started to build rods and I thought that was super cool so I did some research on it and I just saw like the variety that you could do and I thought that was so cool so I just kept on watching YouTube videos and taught myself to do it so I for Christmas I got a like a rod building kit from Mudhole and then I watched some of their videos and that's how that happened that's fantastic. And you have a separate Instagram account that lists you as Oliver, Oliver Taylor Customs. Can I assume that you'd like to build custom rods as a side gig? I yeah, mean I think that'd be fun. I also started tying, uh, I haven't tied any flies yet because I haven't fly fished, but I've tied like crappie jigs and bucktails and I want to tie flare hawks because the, I can use those for snook and bass and peacocks and all that. So I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the bucktails. I want to, I want to, when we get done, I want to order two cobia bucktails from you. I want to get you to tie something a little bit bigger than those crappie jigs. But so, yeah, you've got, I mean, you've got this Oliver Taylor custom site up here and clearly high school is your primary profession right now. Um, and you were pretty adamant that you told me career-wise, you don't want to go into the fishing industry, but you want to be a pilot like your mom. But I guess having that side gig of uh, tying rod, building rods and tying flies and bucktails is a pretty awesome side gig. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I got to say, because you brought it up, you know, everybody at Mudhole, you need to be listening. Brooke, Chris, Stephen, and everyone over at American Tackle Company. And yeah, Kevin, I'm looking at you. You all need Oliver on your pro staff. Trust me on this. 15-year-old, fantastic builder. Expect a call from me lobbying from Oliver soon, guys. Okay. Yeah, man, I'm serious. Those guys need to see what you're doing over at Mudhole and over at American Tackle. So, um, I do want to get a couple of uh, cobia bucktails from you. I'll place an order. So that brings us to sort of the main course, the story of Oliver and Caroline on ice, which is not a bad ice show like Muppets on ice or something. Um, Oliver, since your mom has let you have center stage so far, let me start by asking her, Caroline, tell me about how in the world you ended up arranging this epic adventure for him. Uh, well, it, it started by... Um... I went into his room and he was watching YouTube videos on ice fishing and uh, we agreed this looked really cool. So I went online and researched the best place to go ice fishing in the United States. And um, that took us to Lake of the Woods. And uh, three plane rides later, we arrived. <laughs> yeah, th again, mom of the year award right there. So Given how your mom saw you doing this and that she booked all of this, I got to ask you, what on earth compelled you to want to go ice fishing? I mean, 
you've got what is touted as some of the best fishing in the world right there in your hometown. I mean, Juno Pier is fantastic, right? You've yeah. got the inland waterway, miles upon miles of rivers, creeks, canal, and that doesn't even begin to account for offshore fishing in the sailfish capital of the world. So why ice fishing? Well, it's something like completely different. Like if I ask any of my friends, like no one's ever been ice fishing. And it's just like such a different experience because I'm used to using like very like heavy, big tackle. And when you're ice fishing, you're using like these really tiny rods that I've never used before. And the main thing that got my mom wanting to take me was she saw a massive walleye pulling up, coming right through the ice. And she thought that was the coolest thing in the world. So that's what made us come to Lake of the Woods. So talk to me about those little rods, because I too was kind of shocked, you know, after seeing the pictures of the walleye and the pike and everything, that they basically handed us these little two foot tiny <laughs> spinning rods. I was kind of baffled. How did you, what did you think when you got those rods in your hand? Yeah, I thought that was kind of crazy because like, I've seen, I see all these fish that people catch and I'm like, wow, they catch them on such light tackle and tiny rods. And the night that I met you all, we were rigging, we were putting line on, on rods and we were putting what, six pound tests on those rods. Yeah. I mean, that's barely the pound test that you would use for catching pinfish for your bait for, for where you fish. Yeah. So you went home with a couple of those rods. You think you'll use them in uh, Jupiter anywhere? Going to try oh, yeah. some microlite uh, bass fishing? Yeah, I'll, I'll go get some peacocks with my friends. We'll have some fun on those. <laughs> So um, what did you think about the actual activity of doing it, of being there on these? I mean, first of all, the weather. I mean, what was, what was your reaction to that weather? Because we were there in a brutally cold time. I mean, I think it was minus 20-something one day. Yeah, it was like minus, yeah, like negative 25 the one morning. That's just, that, I, I'm, I'd never experienced anything like that. You ever been that cold before? Never. And we had to gear up pretty solid for that too, right? The all the ice suits and the coat, right. you know, that was a different kind of experience. Yeah, I'm not used to waking up and putting on that many layers just to walk outside and go to the car. <laughs> right. Yeah, and 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 it hurt. I mean, if your hands were exposed, that your fingers started hurting. So, um, but what did you? So when you were fishing there, you, we fished. I don't know if you all did. Did you fish on the open ice or just from inside the fish huts? Only in, inside the huts. So tell me about that experience. What I mean, have you ever fished inside before? That was another thing that I found kind of interesting was I'm fishing, but I'm inside. Yeah, that was also pretty cool. We were inside of a hut sitting down as we were fishing through the ice. <laughs> All right, and there were big augered holes out you know, where you drop things down. What did you think? One of the things that struck me that I was thinking about is where we fish here in Florida, a lot of your fishing is very visual. But there, they're fishing where you can't see where your line or your lure is. And did you all use flashers the whole time? Yeah, we did. So how did you think about that? That to me was like we were playing a video game rather than fishing a lot of times. Talk to me about how the flasher works and what you thought of that. Yeah, I thought those were super cool because, yeah, as you were saying, I mean, you can't see anything that you're doing down there. You just have your line down there. But then those flashers. You, you can like see as the fish comes by, you see a little red dot next to your line and then hope that he hits it and play around with him. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of times we were watching screens rather than watching water. That was kind of, kind of a new thing for me. Yeah. I will say that, you know, as you and I and the three of us are sitting here talking about how that was a new experience for us. One of the guys who was with me while we fished, who grew up doing that kind of fishing made a very similar kind of comment to me about he had never fished with live shrimp before and thought it was very unusual that you would use live shrimp as bait. And I tried to explain, you know, no, that's like the most common bait. And, you know, but I, I suppose that what you get brought up with is what you learn as how fishing is supposed to happen. And watching a digital screen to me just wasn't how I'd been brought up, you know, how to fish. Yeah, it's super different. So um, one of the things that uh, I guess I mean, the immediate question, of course, is going back to those rods. Think you'll ever tie some ice rods? Yeah, no, I, I definitely want to tie an ice rod. I think that'd be super cool. 
And not not a lot of material in that one, huh? <laughs> no, it maybe yeah, tiny tiny amount of thread. So talk to me about the terminal tackle you're using. Were you guys fishing um, lures? Were you fishing bait? How are you how are you enticing the uh, the bite? Ice fishing. Yep. Yeah. Um, we had like a bucket of minnows, but we would we would put a minnow on every lure that we would use. We were using a little uh, rattle trap that, and that was like vibrate and that would get the fish's attention. And then with our second rod, it was like a dead stick. And just, I had like a pink hook with a little weight down there. And that's mainly the line that they would always hit. So, cause they would come over there because of the rattle trap. So on all the lures you were using, you were tipping with, with live minnows. Yeah, we always had like either like a chunk of one or a whole minnow on there. It's kind of an interesting concept that you, if you're going to have the lure, you're also going to have the live bait tie, you know, there together as well. So what did you end up catching? Uh, we caught multiple walleye. We, the first day, um, the bite was pretty good. We, would, we caught about, I think like 20 walleye or something. And then the second day slowed down a bit, but we caught about like 10. And we were able to keep a few to eat for dinner. So that was nice. So did, did you learn the difference between the walleye and the sauger, which I knew nothing about? Yeah, that, that was also pretty cool because they look almost identical. But the I'm pretty sure that sauger or the sauger has like the dots on its fin. And then I'm pretty sure the walleye has the, I don't know if it's the walleye or the sauger with the white dot on the that, fin. The walleye has the, the white tip tail and the saugers yeah. have the black dots. And I think the walleye were a little bit bigger than the sauger also. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they were. Did you all get any pike or anything? No, we only caught walleye. Yeah, us too. We had, um, did you all get out to the igloo, to that, that bar restaurant out on the ice? Did you hear about that? Yeah. So there's a bar uh out on the ice and you while you're at the bar you can fish through the floor while you're at the bar oh, that's cool and uh the woman the bartender there the day we were there caught a big northern pike through the through the ice so uh thought that was kind of interesting but we didn't see anything like that either so so those were those your first walleye yeah that was my first ever walleye that was really cool what'd you think about them in terms of a fight they fought they, they fought pretty good. Um, well, mainly because we were using such light line. I mean, you couldn't really tie in your drag too much, but they, they were pretty fun fighting through the ice because like you just got your little rod and it's bending like all the way down and you just, and then you finally get them up to the ice and you pull them right up through the hole. Yeah. I, I was actually shocked at how the size of some of those fish that come through that hole um, and watching the videos like you did of all the big pike and everything coming up through. Have you thought about going back when the ice opens up? I want to go back and do regular fishing there just so I can see what it actually looks like without it. In my mind, it's not a lake, right? It's just a giant field. Have yeah, you thought about going back when it warms up? Oh, yeah. I, uh, I think it'd be pretty cool to go there and see what the fishing would be like using like actual real rods and stuff. Maybe you could get bigger walleye or something because like then you'd be able to move around and go to different spots so you'd probably catch more fish yeah i want to go back i want to get a northern i want to get a big walleye and i want to get a sturgeon too i didn't realize they did sturgeon fishing up there so i sturgeon i definitely want to go say that again the sturgeon they get really big they, they look a lot of fun yeah we have them here near me on the swanee river but it's illegal to fish for them because that version of them are endangered so we don't get to fish for them here have you surgeon fished before anywhere no, i've never fished yeah. yeah i want to go do that i've done it in oregon but i want to go do it back there at lake of the woods so um so the night that i met you all you were very generous and shared some of the fish you had caught that the folks at riverbend resort had fried up for you what'd you think of those walleye and sauger for eating Oh, they, they tasted really good, especially the way they cooked them. They, they weren't like, didn't have like too crazy of a flavor, but they were just a nice like white meat fish. That was so, Say again, Caroline? I thought it was delicious. It was lovely. Yeah. How do you put them up against the fish that you're usually catching? Would you rather have a walleye or a flounder or a snook or a trout uh, or mahi? I'd probably definitely have like a, a trout snook or mahi over a walleye. 
I once asked, uh, uh, Bill Dance once told me that um, so many uh, saltwater fishermen go and try freshwater fishing and they go right back to saltwater fishing. And then freshwater fishermen go and try saltwater fishing and they don't go back to freshwater. So given that, where would you rather, where would you rather be casting? In Jupiter or in Lake of the Woods? Definitely in Jupiter. <laughs> <laughs> We're not doing very good at promoting their uh, their resort, are we? It's a lot of it's a lot of fun in Lake of the Woods, but there's so much we can do in Jupiter. Yeah, no doubt about it. So, did you all try the poutine while you were there? The French fries with oh, the cheese curd and the gravy. Yes, we did. Oh, yes. Yeah, Oliver loved the cheese curds. <laughs> Yeah, that that that's part of the uh, the the uh, midwestern culinary uh, aspect of things I could get used to. I thought that was pretty good. So uh, yeah, delicious. Yeah. Yep. So what did you? So now that we, now that we've dissed them as not being Jupiter, but uh, what did you think of the Riverbend Resort? Oh, it was a really cool place. I mean, they had a great view of the lake, or it, it was like a river or something. But that was really cool to see, and then you could also just see. Canada right on the other side and then yeah, all, that was of the, cool. all of the big walleye they had mounted on the walls was really cool to look at so when you walked out that back door and you saw the river and you saw Canada and you saw the dock that was completely free what was your first I walked out and I thought why is there a dock in the middle of that field yeah <laughs> yeah it, it was pretty confusing because you just see a bunch of snow just covered everywhere and then you see a dock that you're supposed to see a bunch of boats at yeah that that i will admit when i first walked out i found that discombobulating so um <laughs> yes so you know i was thinking you know one of the things that i really enjoyed about the ice fishing because we were in the huts where it was a little bit warmer a little bit more comfortable that a lot of the ice fishing has a lot to do with who you're with that, you know, if you were stuck in that box for eight hours with, you know, some real jerks, that could be a really lousy time. But, you know, I guess having your mom there or having your son there, that seems kind of kind of nice and kind of fun. Oliver, you think you'd go back and take a group of your buddies with you? Yeah, I wanted to take some of my friends, uh, but they couldn't make it. They were they had some other plans going on at the same time we were going. So he couldn't come. But I think next time, hopefully, we can try and plan something. Yeah, I think that would be a great trip for uh, hanging out with some pals and just you know spending the time fishing. So, um, all right. So, I'd say, um, you know, I, as I'm thinking about you two there, I'm thinking, God, I really want to take my boys there and you know do that same kind of fishing, um, and uh, you know the opportunity to get back there on the water and see what it looks like and then have that comparison there there are a lot of reasons to go back and i think a lot of the reasons like i just said also were because of the people there that, that was just a great group of people the guides and the hosts at river bend um and you know granted we didn't get to fish together we only met each other after you all had been through fishing and we were just getting started uh, but it was great to meet you all up there on the ice. And it was great to share that experience with other Floridians experiencing the ice for the first time, even though we didn't fish together, it was good to know there was someone else there taking it in the same way I was. And of course, this has been a blast having this conversation. I'm really grateful that you took the time to talk with me today. Um, but I have to ask my usual wrap up question, and I'm going to ask, Oliver this question and then I'm going to twist it for you Caroline so um and if you you know my my usual question is given all the fishing that you're doing and now given this ice experience where you've opened up the different kinds of fishing that you know about what's your grail fish what's the bucket list fish for Oliver out there that you really want to go get and I might be setting mom up for a, you know having to promise a trip to Australia or something but uh, <laughs> But what's the fish out there that you really want to catch? I mean, there's many. Um, <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. But if I had to say one, um, maybe maybe a rooster fish, because those are all the way down in Costa Rica, and I think those are really cool looking, and they put off pretty good fight. You want to catch it on a rod you built? Nah, that would be even better. Yeah, I'd love to do that. 
Yeah, I th- there's something about catching a, a bucket list fish, but there's something about catching a bucket list fish on a rod you built or on a lure you tied. Yes. So that, you know, that's a great bucket list fish. All right. So, mom, what's the bucket list trip you want to take him on? And now, clearly, given your and given that I know that you were just flying down towards South America anyway, it seems that, you know, a little stop off in Costa sounds like a doable plan. But where do you want to take him? Oh, I'm, I'm game for anywhere he wants to go. He, he's mentioned the Amazon. Um, so, you know, it's, you know, I love spending time with him and, and traveling. So, and my, my job allows me the flexibility to take time off. So. Oh, that's great. That's great. Hey, Oliver, have you watched any of the Amazon fishing videos? Do you keep up with the, some of those channels? Oh yeah, I've seen so many of them. They're, they, they look so cool using those big top water lures and then, is because I'm used to seeing like little like three, four or five pound peacock bass down here. And then over there they have like 20 pound peacocks and those look so fun, especially the ones they catch on fly. Yeah. I was going to ask you if the peacock was your avenue into the, into the Amazon, but that, that would be absolutely fantastic. So Carolyn Oliver, it was great to meet you up there on the ice. And it was great to share that experience with other Floridians, even though it was mostly conversational for those of us, uh, you know, first time on the ice, even though we never fished together. And it was good to know there was someone else up there taking it all in. And of course, this has been fun. And I really am grateful that you took the time to talk with me today. Can't thank you both enough. Oliver, I'm serious. I'm going to reach out to the folks at Mudhole and American Tackle. And I do want you to tie a couple of uh, Cobia bucktails for me. Uh, maybe a couple others we can discuss that depending on what your price range is uh, you know you you boutique tires can get expensive sometimes so uh, but uh, thank you both so much for being on the Rodcast. it's been great talking to you oh, thank you very much thank you so much for having us Oh man, that was a fun conversation. I love talking with young anglers like Oliver. And even though he's exactly the same age as one of my boys, there's no way I could get my own kid to have that conversation. First, he'd refuse to do it. Then every time I'd ask him something, he'd probably just make fart noises and refuse to answer the question, which of course would actually be really funny, but not really productive for a podcast. But I will admit all that kid talk leaves me wanting a break. And it seems like as good a time as any for a bourbon break. So I have to ask all the kids to leave the podcast so we grown-ups can talk grown-up stuff like bourbon. And this week, I hesitantly want to talk about Hudson Baby Bourbon Whiskey. And I will admit that when I first saw this bottle on a shelf at my liquor store, I misread the label and thought it said Hudson Bay Bourbon. And so I thought, oh, cool, I can talk about fishing in Hudson Bay, Ontario when I talk about this bourbon. And I could talk about Arctic char and whitefish and Arctic cod, halibut, salmon, polar place, which are also known as Christmas flounder or Arctic flounder. I could talk about trout and walleye and pike when I talk about this bourbon. But alas, when I actually put my glasses on and realized I had missed that extra B in the word and it's Hudson baby bourbon whiskey, all that fishing chatter went bye-bye. And it also means that I can't provide cool information about Hudson Bay Trading Company and the fur trade and all that cool stuff that would have lent to a fun and informative bourbon break. Nonetheless, on today's bourbon break, I will be chewing over my thoughts about Hudson Baby Bourbon Whiskey, which I have also learned that Hudson Baby Bourbon Whiskey is, despite what the name very clearly says, is not, and I repeat, it is not a bourbon for babies. And I'm not telling the story in public of how I learned that ever again. But my sincere apologies to all the folks whose toddlers were incarcerated at the Happy Stork Daycare facility on January 13th, which I now have to stay at least 500 yards away from. Trust me, this was an honest snack time mistake, not a premeditated attempt at a daycare soiree. I mean, baby formula, clearly for babies. Baby diapers, clearly for babies. Baby bottles, intended for babies, but they have some great bourbon application too. But evidently, baby bourbon isn't actually baby bourbon. This is a labeling lawsuit waiting to happen. All right, now seriously, Hudson Baby Bourbon Whiskey is made by Hudson Distillery out of New York. 
From what I've read about the distillery about 230 years ago, so back in the late 1700s, the Tuffletown Gristmill was built in Gardnier, New York. But the real distillery story doesn't start until 2001 when pro rock climber Ralph Arenzo bought the land where the gristmill had been located. He had planned to build a bed and breakfast on the land, but couldn't get the permits to do so. So in 2003, he decided to use the land to open a distillery. They used local resources to create a local-inspired whiskey and began to build up a local following. And in 2010, William Grant & Sons, which is a Scottish-based distillery, which is the third largest producer of Scotch whiskeys in the world, they bought out the Hudson Distillery. But here's the thing. It's hard for me to think of New York City as a bourbon haven. Sure, I've had lots of bourbon and some great bars around New York City, but it just doesn't bring bourbon making to mind. Maybe that's just my prejudicial thinking of Kentucky in the South as bourbon land. I just keep thinking of that damn Pace Picante commercial. Your salsa comes from New York City. Your bourbon comes from New York City. Don't get me wrong. I love New York, as the t-shirt says, but I just can't picture it as a location for bourbon making. Hey, and don't get me wrong, I get the whole history of how certain grains came to the U.S. from Europe and how both the Amish and the Quaker and the Mennonites all brought their grains over from Europe and how that became planted all over the Northeast and then moved into Appalachia and moved into Kentucky and became very foundational in bourbon. And so I get the role of New York and grain in bourbon and that history. But I just don't see the connection that my mouth wants to make between New York City and bourbon. But Hudson does make several whiskeys, including Hudson Manhattan Rye Whiskey, Hudson New York Corn Whiskey, Hudson Single Malt Whiskey, and Hudson Sour Grain Bourbon Whiskey, as well as, of course, Hudson's Baby Bourbon Whiskey. I do like the Hudson bottles. They're wide and squat. And for some reason, for me, to me, they evoke more of a rum jug ethos than a whiskey jug, but they're aesthetically pleasing nonetheless. And the labels have a great font and great design that makes them look sharp and classy. The eye of the Hudson Baby Bourbon Whiskey is very coppery, but somewhere between New Penny and Old Penny. There is a lot that is unique about the Hudson Baby Bourbon Whiskey, including the fact that this is a 100% corn mash bill. No rye, no malt, no wheat, just corn. And it's aged in really small barrels that are only three gallons, and they only age the bourbon for about a minimum of three months, not telling how much longer beyond that. This is probably why the nose and the palate of the Hudson Bay Bourbon is very green, very new. And as it turns out, now that I've had time to think it through, this is what they mean by it being a baby bourbon, very small and underaged. In fact, the nose of the Hudson baby is best described as green, as new, as has a big ethanol smell. It's very antiseptic, almost like moonshine or white whiskey rather than bourbon. It clearly hasn't picked up much flavoring from the oak aging barrels. Yeah, because it's all corn, you get the idea that this is going to be a sweeter bourbon, but you really can't get much of a sweet smell over all that alcohol. The palate confirms greenness and a heavy, astringent, dominant flavor. It wants to be a sweet bourbon whiskey, but it just can't pull it off. And I got to say, the taste makes me think of hospital disinfectant. The finish is just an astringent linger. It's a dry finish. I found myself wanting an ice water chaser after each drink of the Hudson Baby Bourbon Whiskey. It's not a bottle I'll buy again, I'll tell you. Oh, and speaking of, I should say that the bottle lists for as low as 40 bucks a bottle, but I've seen it for as high as 60, and you'd have to be high to buy it for 60. So, no, not a fan of Hudson Baby Bourbon Whiskey, and now I see why the babies scream so much. I mean, really, they are, after all, novice drinkers, but even so, this isn't a whiskey you'd want to pour a more seasoned drinker, let, let alone a newbie like a baby. Plus now, I just want to say Hudson Baby Bourbon Bumpers, Hudson Baby Bourbon Bumpers, over and over again. And those, my friends, are my juvenile thoughts about Hudson Baby Bourbon Whiskey. And probably not the review that the folks over at Hudson Distillery wanted to hear, but from what I've seen online, there's a lot of other folks who feel the same way about this spirit. And I guess that makes my weekly disclaimer a bit more relevant and further acknowledgement that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break Reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. 
The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how developed over many years in this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back alley speakeasies. Hey, you know, speaking of, and since we're talking about a New York-based whiskey, and we know that there are a ton of great bars and a ton of crappy bars all across the Big Apple, and while I've only been there a couple of times, I do have to say that Pete's Tavern over in the East Village in Gramercy Park near Union Square is well worth the visit when you're in the city. It's not the oldest bar in New York, even though they claim to be the oldest operating bar in Manhattan. That honor actually goes to France's Tavern in the Financial District, which was established in 1719. But Pete's opened in 1864, and so it's still got a lot of history. In fact, the awning outside Pete's reads, The Tavern O'Henry Made Famous. O'Henry, of course, being the pen name of William Sidney Porter, who was an American writer. You probably remember his short stories like The Gift of the Magi, The Duplicity of the Hargraves, or one of my all-time favorites, which I invoke every time when I'm held captive in an endlessly boring meeting, The Ransom of Red Chief. O'Henry lived around the corner from Pete's and was a regular patron and back at the turn of the 20th century. Now, there are a lot of great things to eat and drink at Pete's, but I remember one of the few times I was there in the middle of a bitter, bitter winter storm, and the bartender suggested their Irish coffee. But since I don't like coffee, he poured me a bourbon maple apple cider made with buffalo trace. And man, oh man, oh man, was that good. Now, my friends did try the Irish coffee and said it was phenomenal. And yes, they made it proper with Jameson. And I also recall another time having one of their famous Pete's Old Fashioned made with Sazerac rye, and that was a damn fine drink as well. So a tip of the hat to Pete's Tavern in New York City. So I used to know a clever toast, but now I cannot think it. So fill your glass to anything, and damn your souls, I'll drink it. As always, if you've got comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com. Now back to casting. All right, my listening crew, it is time for this week's Fishing Professor Top 10 List. And this week, I want to talk about something cutting edge, a top 10 list that is a cut above the rest. On this week's list, I'll take a stab at counting down my top 10 bait knives. Now, you might think I'm not cut out for this list, but I've got a lot of experience with bait and bait knives. Of course, when it comes down to it, just about any knife can be a bait knife if you're willing to succumb your knives to the duty of bait cutting. Certainly, I have used my fillet knives, my pocket knives, even my kitchen knives, or even once a steak knife I pocketed from a dockside restaurant because I knew I had forgotten to grab a bait knife, all to cut bait at one time or another. But the thing is, there are actually knives designed for cutting bait. And when I say they are designed for cutting bait, they have a few characteristics that are best for the messy chore of cutting bait. First is cost. Folks who cut bait a lot will know that you are likely to go through many bait knives over the course of a single fishing season, let alone over the course of a lifetime. So for me, a primary consideration of a bait knife is that they are relatively inexpensive. Cutting bait is not the task you want to bring your custom Damascus steel blades to. Bait knives ain't dining room cutlery. Second, bait knives need to be fixed blade knives, not folding blades. The last thing you want to deal with when messing with, say, a bucket of squid or a bunch of bonita is opening the blade. Plus, a lot of time you end up cutting bait in a hurry to get bait back out when the bit when the bite is on. So a folding blade is just another step you have to add to the process. Yeah, I get that that sounds really minimal in the problem realm, but seriously, bait knives need to be fixed blades. So all of the knives in this list are fixed blades. Plus, with a fixed blade, you don't end up with tiny pieces of bait chunks in the folding mechanism or once slimy and slippery bait goo all in the cracks and crevices of the fold of the bait knife. I had the locking mechanism on a folding knife slip and the blade inadvertently slipped closed, cutting my finger in the process because it got covered in squid slime one time. And yeah, that doesn't happen a lot. And if you're just cutting a few bloodworms or night crawlers or something, then not a big worry. But if you're cutting and cleaning a few dozen squid or butterf butterflying a mess of herring, then yeah, fixed blade only. To that end as well, not only fixed blade, but look for through tang construction to give the blade some strength when cutting through bone, like when you're chunking pogies. Chunking pogies, by the way, would make a great band name, not to be confused with that great Irish Celtic punk band, the Pogues, who were originally called Pogue Mahone, which is an anglicized version of Pogue Mothoin, which means kiss my arse. 
which is what I'd bet Shane McGowan would tell you if you told him to cut bait. Anyway, I die fish. Along the same line as the through tang construction for strength when cutting bone, I also recommend bait knives that have both a plain edge blade with a serrated edge on the spine for when you need to saw through, through a bait fish spine or heavier bones. Having both blades on a knife also allows you an easier time preparing your baits in the style you prefer, like chunking, plugging, or slicing. I'll try to let you know in this list which ones do or do not have that serration added to it. I'm also a stickler for the grip on a bait knife. As I've suggested, cutting bait can get messy, so I want a handle that has a lot of grip, even when wet and covered in bait slime. And I also want a grip that's a little bit thicker than other knives, simply because I don't want to have to squeeze a bait knife so tight for a long period of time. So I look for a thicker handle grip in bait knives. I will say that this is something that I've become more attentive to as I age and my hands are more likely to stiffen in colder conditions or when I'm messing with baits that have been kept on ice. It's also something I picked up from looking at the designs of my oyster shucking knives, which tend to have more bulbous handles. Now, there are a lot of bait knives out there, and inevitably I always end up buying a couple of those really cheap ones that you see in a cup right at the cash register at most bait and tackle shops. But the knives in this list are a bit better than most of those. The ones in this list are knives that are more than one-time use disposables, which is what I tend to think of those cash, reg cash register knives as, particularly since most of those sub-$10 knives rust out pretty quickly and lose their edge very quickly. Of course, they're convenient and readily available, and pretty much they're pretty much available every bait-and-tackle store I've ever been in, and there's no harm in having a few of them in your tackle. To that end, if you do want a few of those kinds of knives, I do recommend you look for the Sea Striker 4-inch bait knife or the Evolution bait knife or one of my favorites in this category, Cuda Brands 4-inch bait utility knife. They usually run about five or six bucks and they last a little better than some of the others out there. In fact, with most of these, you can actually buy them in bulk because the intent isn't for customers like us to buy one knife, but for retailers to buy the full display and then sell them to folks like us. For example, the Kuda bait knife, bait utility knife, sells in a bucket of 24 for about 90 bucks. So about $3.75 each, which you can add a dollar to and then sell for retail for under five bucks. You'll see many, many knockoff versions of these kinds of cash register afterthought knives out there, especially the Evolution knife, because they're all mostly made in the same factory in China. And to be honest, I'm not sure which brand is the original and which are the knockoffs, but they're all mass produced and distributed under many names across the country. Now, those are bonus knives, not part of the top 10. But hey, now that I, you know, now that I think about it too, Way back about nine or 10 years ago, when we first launched Inventive Fishing and first started producing video gear reviews, the first review I ever recorded was a review of the Evolution Bait Knife. So you see, I've been thinking about bait knives for a very long time now, and you can check out that first review of the Evolution Knife on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel, which you really should subscribe to, and you really should subscribe to this podcast if you don't already. Now, I could go on about bait knives in general, and I could make this introduction to the list a much longer assessment of bait knives in general, but I'll cut to the chase and get to the list. So slice, slice, baby, like they say, fish or cut bait. All right, let's cleave our way into this list with the Rapala 4-inch bait knife, which may be an unfair way of doing this, since when you look at it, the Rapala bait knife looks exactly like the Sea Striker and the Evolution knives I just mentioned as falling shy of this list, and maybe this really should be number 11 in the top 10, but I'm putting it here as our opener because even though, for all I know, this knife may come from the same Chinese factory as the Sea Striker and the Evolution Bait Knives, there's just something about it that feels more solid in my hand. I like the four-inch blade with its serrated upper blade and razor-sharp primary blade. It's got a through-tang construction, and the vintage sheath locks on solidly and snaps off easily. I like the vintage sheath because it protects the blade but allows airflow through to dry the blade easier after cleaning. You can find them for just under 10 bucks, and I like to have one or two in my boat console or one or two in my tackle bags. All right, and number nine. How about Mustad's 4-inch bait knife? And I need to clarify, though, that there are multiple versions of Mustad's 4-inch bait knife. There is the MTB002 model, which is much more like that category I mentioned with the Sea Striker 4-inch, the Evolution bait knife, or even the Rapala bait knife. But it's got a more developed handle that I like better than the Sea Striker or Evolution or Rapala grips. 
But for the top 10 list, I'm really talking about the MT-001 model. This blade on this model is made with high-grade German stainless steel and is then coated with a DuPont Teflon. This is really corrosion resistant, and that Teflon coating is like having a nonstick fry pan coating, so the blade slides through whatever bait you're cutting a little easier. I really like the polypropylene soft no-slip no grip. Now, this knife does not have the added serration on the spine, but it does have a line cutter notch, which I guess is useful. It does come with a safety sheath with a thumb lock, and they list for about 10 bucks. All right, at number eight, let's go with Eagle Claw's bait knife, which has a shorter three and three eighths inch blade, but it does have the serrated spine. The blade is stainless steel. It's got a good, easy to grip rubber coated handle that has these no slip qualities that I really like. It's a very rudimentary knife. It does not come with a sheath, but it also is one of the least expensive knives out there, even less than many of those cash register knives listing for less than three bucks at many places. And I've seen them on the racks at Walmart and other places. All right, at number seven, I'm going to go to the Tsunami 4-inch steel bait knife. This is a 420 stainless steel blade that has the serration on the spine. The ported polypropylene handle is solid, and it has a lot of strength to it. It's a saltwater design knife, so it's fairly corrosion resistant. I think if I were to find one word to describe the Tsunami bait knife, it would have to be tough. It's a tough little knife. It does not come with a scabbard, but it is also usually listed for under 10 bucks. All right, at number six, how about Billy Bay's high-vis three, three and three-quarter knife from Bet's Tackle? Now, I'm not 100% sure about the naming of these knives because the most recent Bet's catalog shows them as Halo-vis knives, but online I see them listed as high-vis knives. Either way, I'm talking about the Billy Bay bait knives, not the fillet knives, which are also part of the Halo-vis or high-vis knife line. Interestingly, the fillet knives only have a four-inch blade, which seems short for a fillet knife, and cost about six bucks, while the bait knives cost about 13 bucks and have a slightly shorter blade at three and three-quarter inches. I'm not sure what kind of filleting they plan on doing with a four-inch knife, um, but I also prefer the handle on the bait knife to the fillet knife. It's a very simple blade, no serration on the spine. It's made from, high, from a high-carbon stainless steel with a double tapered edge that is hand-honed and sharpened. I like the texture of the hard polypropylene handle and the vented polypropylene sheath. That brings us to the midway point, 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 point. And I'll throw Outrigger Outdoors VG10 Flex Gut and Bait Knife here for several reasons. First, I have to say that as far as bait knives go, the Gut and Bait Knife has one of the best bait knife handles out there. I love the additional thumb grip and the thick no-slip grip that is molded with angled ridges to prevent slipping. The handle also has one of the best actually usable holes for adding a lanyard rather than like a lot of bait knives that have these tiny little rigging eyes that are never big enough for a good lanyard or a piece of paracord or whatever. The blade has the serrated edge, and unlike many other bait knives, it's got a gut hook on the back side of the blade. It's also got one of the better bait knife sheaths than most of the other knives in this list, primarily because it has a belt loop, uh, and most of the others just don't. I'll also have to admit, I really like the two-color option for this knife. So at number four, I want to go with a bait knife that is very new to the market, though it comes from a great knife company with a solid history of making all kinds of fishing, hunting, tactical, daily carry, and kitchen knives. Smith's Products introduced their new Bushcraft 4.5-inch stainless steel knife at SHOT Show in January 2023 in Las Vegas. Now, they market as an all-around bushcraft knife suitable for hunting, fishing, camping, survival, rumbles, political incursions, cheese boards, and state dinners. But when you look at the knife, particularly in the context of looking at it alongside the nine other bait knives, it looks like a bait knife, and the four-and-a-half-inch blade makes it ideal for such tasks. I absolutely love the non-slip TPE soft-grip handle on this knife. In fact, and I'm not making this up, I'm holding the knife in my hand as I talk to you, and that grip really does impress me. I like this stainless steel blade and the strength of the through-handle construction. It doesn't have the serration. But the blade itself is very reliable and holds an edge very well. The sheath is solid, and I like the ease of the belt clip on the sheath. And since it lists for about 13 bucks, this is one of those knives that I plan to buy several more of to distribute among my tackle and gear bags. All right, at number three, 
I think I need to be sure to talk about a knife that I've been using a lot lately, and that's Spro's 4-inch bait knife. Like Smith's Bushcraft knife, this blade doesn't have the serration, but its really strong through-handle blade is just great. And the thing about the knife that always gets my attention is the grip. It's really comfortable and truly non-slip. Another knife with a good sheath, and at about 8 bucks a pop, this is another of those knives that every time I use it and have confidence in it and comfort in using it, I think, Sid, just buy a dozen of these and put them in all of your gear bags and in your truck and in your boat. Just leave them laying around for the kids to play with. They're great knives to have around. All right. In the runner-up position, I got to go to a knife that I have a lot of confidence in, and that's Cast King's bait knife. Now, to clarify, Cast King sells this knife as a bait and fillet knife, but the distinction is that there are models ranging from 5 inches up to 12 inches, and for this list, I'm only looking at that smaller 5-inch version. Also, though I haven't used it yet, I see in the Cast King catalog that they've upgraded the bait knife to a newer model called Cast King Intimidator Bait Knife, which looks awesome and comes with a sharpener, but I haven't used it. So I'm sticking with the original and will wait until I get my hands on the Intimidator, which is a pretty aggressive knife name for a bait knife, by the way, the Intimidator Bait Knife. And I'll wait till I have that in hand before I make comments about it. And I have to say that though I've only mentioned the quality a few times in this list, and really it's ultimately irrelevant, but I have to say that the Casking Bait Knife, it's a pretty knife. The, stri the striking orange no-slip grip handle with the black finished blade is just as aesthetically pleasing as can be. And yeah, I get it. I'm talking about the aesthetics of something as mundane as a bait knife, but I have to concede that the Casking Knives, they're pretty. The blade is a German steel with a black coating, and as I noted, which adds to its corrosion resistance, the blade has one of the best serrated edges on the spine of the knife, better than any I've seen or used on other knives. So chunking, cutting, slicing, or plugging style bait prep is really easy with this knife. It's also got a gut hook and a great vented sheath, just a top-tier bait knife. All right, so that brings us to my favorite bait knife. But before I get to it, how about a recap of the other nine knives? At 10, we had Mustard's 4-inch bait knife. At 9, we had Eagle Claw's bait knife. At 8, Billy Bay's either high-vis or halo-vis, depending on which catalog you're looking at. Their 3 and 3 quarter inch bait knife. At 7, Tsunami's 4-inch steel bait knife. At 6, Rapala's 4-inch bait knife. At 5, Outrigger Outdoors VG10 Flex Gutton bait knife. At four, Smith Products Bushcraft Knife. At three, Spro 4-inch Bait Knife. At two, Cast King's Bait Knife. And that brings us to my number one choice in bait knives. And I'm going to go to another great knife from Smith's Consumer Products, and that's their Bait Breaker Knife. And there are two versions of this knife, a coated version and a non-coated version. The black coating provides an extra level of corrosion on the coated version, both versions are made for from a 400 series stainless steel, and both have great serration on the spine as well as a gut hook. Plus, the no-slip TPE grips on these are just what I'm looking for in any knife that I'm going to use in wet, slimy conditions. I'm also a really fan of the way the bait breaker knives hold their edge. These are not single-use knives. They're not even single-season knives. These are multi-season reliable bait knives. And yes, they are a little more expensive than many of the knives I've discussed today. The original uncoated version lists for about $25, and the coated version is just a bit more at $28. But seriously, these are professional-grade knives, which is not something we tend to think about when we think about bait knives. In fact, I think most of us, when we hear the term bait knife, we by default imagine an older, rustier knife or something other kind of low-quality, possible disposable knife. But the Smith's Bait Breaker, and honestly, several other knives on this week's list, are professional knives. In fact, I see mates on party boats and charter boats using these knives. So yes, indeed, my number one bait knife has to be the Smith's Products Bait Breaker Knife. And that wraps up this week's top 10. And I have to say, I never imagined that I would get to a point in my fishing career where I'd be parsing out the comparative worth and effectiveness as something as mundane as bait knives, and the fact that I actually think about having something designated as a bait knife rather than just as a knife really says something about the recreational fishing industry and our demand for task-specific tackle. Well, I hope you got my point about all of this. <laughs> and by the way, bit of advice, 
you ever get in a knife fight with a bunch of clowns, be sure to go for the juggler. Ha! That's kind of cleaver of me, I should say. We should tang out sometime. And cut. Does anybody here remember Vera Lynn? Remember how she said that we would meet again some sunny day? Vera, Vera, what has become of you? Does anybody else in here feel the way I do at having to end another episode of the Rodcast because my dear devoted listeners, it is time for another parting of ways as we bring this episode into port. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time to listen to this week's episode. And I certainly can't thank Oliver and Caroline enough for sharing their experiences out on the ice with us and for Oliver telling us about his fishing adventures. And I was serious, my listening crew. Oliver is an up-and-comer in the rod building and lure tying world. So maybe you can offer him a little support by checking out his early offerings over on Instagram at Oliver underscore Taylor underscore Customs. I'll be placing my order for a few bucktails this week for certain. So thanks, Oliver and Caroline. And I do hope you found some amusement in my consideration of Hudson Baby Bourbon Whiskey and that my review of my top 10 favorite bait knives was sharp enough for you. Hey, since we're talking about knives a bit today, let me ask you, what do Mac the Knife, Attila the Hun, and Winnie the Pooh all have in common? They all have the same middle name. Now, before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The charter is booked. I say again, the charter is booked. And that just about does it for this week's episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Be sure to look for next week's episode, which will drop on Wednesday next week, and I hope you and all the members of my listening crew will spread the word about the Rodcast. And of course, if you have a comment or question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future Top 10's Bourbon Breaks interviews or information about a specific fishing-related subject, please feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the Rodcast. Hey, be sure to follow Inventive Fishing on Twitter, follow us on Instagram, and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing. And be sure to check out all the great video content over on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel, which includes great gear reviews, new product introductions, and a mess of other great content. I will be back next week with another episode. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on! The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!